0: Uh, Friends, there's something you should know about. I'm a big shirt guy. I love me a nice button-down shirt. Short sleeve, long sleeve, doesn't matter. I like a good-looking design, a unique style as well. I don't want just any old shirt. I want a cool-looking shirt. There's actually uh, people close to me who have come up with ways to define the sorts of shirts that I like and wear. (laughs) Caleb Shockley has come up with terms. He calls them clinch shirts. Oh. And he can delineate exactly what is a clinch shirt and what is not a clinch shirt. So if you want to learn the criteria, you can ask, Caleb what sorts of shirts that I like to wear. But I've learned over the years that the way that I wear my shirts is a little divisive. It can cause a little bit of relational tension with some people close to me. And so naturally I keep doing it, right? I keep wearing it. <laughs> but here's, here's what causes the tension. I wear my shirts with every button. All the way to the top. I call it my no button left behind pause. Right. And I've been doing this for years. And to be fair, I can't say I recommend this for everyone because I have a skinny giraffe like neck, so it's never really restricting for me. But not everyone has a similar shaped neck, right? It might constrict breathing, it might be a health hazard, so I can't say everyone should do it in the same way. But it's the way I wear my shirts. And my brother has been one of the most outspoken critics over the years. He hates it. Uh, he'll, if he sees me wearing a shirt like this, he'll run up to me and try to unbutton it sometimes just <laughs> as quickly as possible. So that's what causes a lot of tension, and I care about the people, I love doing life with the people, and I want to invite you into the opportunity to provide some input on this stylistic choice. So I have a poll question for everyone, <laughs> a two-part poll question. I'm going to ask first if you think I should continue to wear my shirts this way, and second if you think I should cease wearing my shirts with the buttons at to the top. So first, if you think I should continue to wear my shirts with the button button to the top, raise your hand. All right, I won't ask the second part of that question. We are good. Yes, thank you so much for supporting my stylistic choices. thanks, guys. That makes me feel very firm. Now, I can show up for church every week and wear my shirts like this. With a button to the top, I can press my shirts, I can comb my hair, I can look pristine on a Sunday morning but what if I didn't shower for six months? What if I didn't brush my teeth for six months? If you were standing next to me at church, you'd be like, what is, this? What is going on with Clint? Right? Something's wrong with Clint. I would have an outside-in approach. I would be putting on a shirt over, well, not the healthiest person, right? And I would be projecting a certain image, but it would be very clear very quickly if you spent much time with me that I need to go take a shower. If you cared about me and you love me, you'd tell me, hey, go clean, right? Go brush your teeth. And that's because we all inherently know that it's not just about the outside that matters, right? It's not just about the outside image that we project. You would be telling me to shift from an outside-in perspective to an inside-out perspective in my own holistic health in my life. And in this next installment, in our series we're calling, Whoa! We find Jesus doing something similar with the religious people of his day. So he spends a lot of time with these people. They're often called Pharisees or religious teachers or leaders. He worshipped next to them, he ate meals with them, he did life alongside them. And after a while, he started to smell something. Not physical, but spiritual. He started to notice that something was off between what they projected to be versus what they were in their interior lives. They had a spiritual, outside-in approach. And they believed that real life and real connection to God would come when you projected an outward image, when you did the right religious things. And Jesus exposes that. And then he says true life, true connection, comes well, from an inside-out approach, where complete transformation comes in our lives, in the deepest parts of who we are, where God changes everything about us from the inside out. That's what Jesus says the true spiritual life is about. He tells them to shift their mindset from an outside-in to an inside-out approach. And he's telling us to be the same in our lives. Let's see how Jesus uh, communicates this to the people of his time. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 11, if you'd like to flip there. In Bible. We're going to have the text up on the screen if you'd like to follow along. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37 and reading through verse 41. Luke 11, verse 37. While he was speaking, a Pharisee invited him to dine with him. So he went in and took his place at the table. The Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed, wickedness. You're fools. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? Scholar William Barclay writes in his commentary uh, that in Jesus' day, there was a common practice amongst religious leaders at that time. They would have in their homes or abodes a bowl, usually made of stone, it was filled with water. It was recommended that when you entered into their home, that you wash your hands. And they had a specific method. This was a very precise and rigorous ritual. There were rabbis who actually were excommunicated because they didn't do it correctly. This was a really important thing for them in that day. Here's how it worked. You'd enter into the home. You'd have some sort of small receptacle. You'd dip it into the, uh, the bowl. You'd start by pouring it over your fingers first, down to your wrist. And then you'd rub your hands together, wash them. But to make sure that water got as deep as it could go, you'd make a fist with one and press it into each of your palms as well. You want to make sure this water gets to every part of your hands. And then you'd reverse the process. You'd do it again, starting with the wrist, pouring it over there, down towards the fingers. And you do the same thing. Rub your hands together, make a fist with one, make a fist with the other, press it into your palms. This was a crucial ritual for them. And when we think of hand-washing in our day, I'm going to wipe my hands on my pants (laughs) because I don't have any time. When we think of hand-washing in our day, especially the last couple years, we often think of hygiene, right? Think of cleanliness physically. But that wasn't the primary reason that they did this. It was actually more about ritual and religious cleanliness. For the Pharisees, this was a matter of distancing yourself and cleansing yourself from the world out there. It was an identifying marker of who was in, who was clean, and who was out, who was unclean. That was a crucial part of this practice for them. It outwardly indicated insider from outsider. Scholar Joel Green talks about this. He calls it a boundary-making and boundary-keeping device. That's what this was about. So when you showed a concern for clean hands, it meant you showed a concern for outer purity. And you wanted to make sure that everyone around you knew whose side you were on. Everyone around you knew that you aligned with God. And that's the outside-in approach. That the public expression of faith indicates your nearness to God. That was the role of this sort of practice. But Jesus when he was invited into the home of a Pharisee, which was a very honorable thing at that time, he doesn't ceremonially wash his hands. That's deviant behavior for a rabbi to do. He's intentionally refusing to do the social and religious behavior that would indicate himself to them as an insider. This would have been utterly offensive at the time. To reject the practices of your host when you were invited into their home is to reject their hospitality outright. Hospitality is a huge thing in Middle Eastern culture, both today and then. If you didn't do what your host told you to do or wanted you to do, it was a rejection of their hospitality. And notice the Pharisee sees this, and he's amazed. He's shocked, right? He can't believe it. But he doesn't call Jesus out either. Do you catch that? He stays quiet because in the same way that it's important for a guest to show uh, respect to the host, it's also important for the host to show respect to the guest. So even though he's been offended, the Pharisee doesn't respond in kind. He just is quiet. But Jesus continues. He calls him out. This is just getting more and more offensive in this situation. Not only does he refuse to do the hand-washing practice, he also calls out this Pharisee publicly. He says that while this Pharisee might care for putting together his outer life really well, right? he says the same care does not exist for the inner life. He says that functionally he's washing the outside of a dish without washing The inside. We all do dishes. We know that the inside of the dish is the thing you should clean, right? You can't make spaghetti and then clean the outside and be like, we're good. If I did that and you came to our house, you'd be like, you have a problem. (laughs) You need to clean the inside of this dish. Jesus is saying here that this Pharisee is living with a no button left behind policy, but he's not showering, he's not brushing his teeth, and eventually something's going to start to stink. He's disrupting the outside-in approach. And this is radical, you guys. Jesus is entering the space, acting as the social and religious outsider, and pointing out the hypocrisy of the insiders, pointing out that the way that they're going about things is not actually the way that God has called them to. That They're not really connected to God in the way that they say or think they are. He's redefining what it means to be close to God. So it turns out that the act of displaying outward piety and put-togetherness in a way that elevates myself over others isn't actually the way to indicate nearness to God. The act of displaying outward piety and put-togetherness in a way that elevates myself in the eyes of others isn't actually the way to illustrate nearness to God. And he's defining this problem with the Pharisees, but it's not just about them. This is actually a trend that has existed over the course of religious history and the Christian church's history as well. Remember, Luke is writing his gospel to people so that they can hear in the early church the message of Jesus. So he thinks this is important for the early church to hear. And Paul, in a couple of his New Testament letters, is dealing with the same sort of thing. You can read about these sorts of outside-in issues in the early church. Galatians is a great example of this. People were trying to enforce an outside-in form of spirituality, saying you have to do this practice in order to be close to God. Paul disrupts that in his time. And guys, it's still a trap for us today. All of us in this room, as religious people and as Christian people, can get trapped in an outside-in approach, and it can mess us up in a variety of ways. There are three major ones that I think are pertinent for us to hear, particularly in our day, ways that the outside-in approach really affects us and traps us spiritually. The first way is that it blinds us to how we've distanced ourselves from God. See, we can become so consumed in our outer religious fervor, that we fail to cultivate inner nearness to God. And so the result is a life that appears a certain way based on the things that we do, but isn't integrated, isn't holistic, isn't getting at the deepest parts of ourselves. This actually prevents us, our religious action, from seeing our distance from God because we think we're doing it right. We think we're doing all the religious things correctly. They can serve as blinders to us. A quick example for you. There was a a small church that existed a few decades ago. They started meeting in an auditorium and grew quite quickly. Within just two years, they had to purchase a 90-acre plot of land because they were growing so quickly. They built a few buildings, and soon, within just a few years, thousands of people were involved in this church community. They were serving and loving their neighborhood in powerful ways. They were raising up new leaders. It was an incredible ministry. But then after a few decades, some accusations started to arise. Numerous people accused ministry leaders in that church of malpractice, of abuse. And the leaders of that church, the elders and other leaders, decided to do an internal investigation. And they found the accusations to be not credible. And many of them are actually quoted as having said, well, that sort of thing couldn't have existed here. Look at all that we're doing. Look at all of the great stuff that this church is involved in. Look at all the ways God is working through this church. That can't exist here Look at all the fruit. But accusations kept coming up. And so, due to pressure from the outside, eventually an external investigation was done, and dozens of accusations that spanned decades were found to be quite credible, quite legitimate. Leaders of this church had to step down as a really ugly thing. Friends, the outside in approach, the idea of saying, look at all that we're doing, this is a justification of our health. It made this community miss the rampant anti-Christ dynamics happening in their church. Their outer purity blinded them to their inner corruption. And you'll notice, I didn't mention any specific details about that church or any names because it's not about the church. That story has been played out over and over and over. This is not a unique thing. Over the course of church history, this is common. This is often what religion can do to us. Jesus' critique is not supposed to make us point fingers at other people. It's meant to make us look at ourselves. It's meant to make us consider how we might be blind to holistic transformation because we just keep doing the religious thing. This is a crucial point. It's not meant to point fingers out there. It's meant to focus us in here. So that's the first way. The outside-in approach often covers up or blinds us to our real distance from God. But the outside-in approach also can prevent us from healthy critique and repentance when we identify something is off. See, we often buy into the notion that our public displays of belief and purity and piety are indications of our nearness to God, and then we miss the times that maybe our motivations aren't. The church is pretty notorious for this. The church has tended throughout history to do outer religious things and sometimes neglect the heart of Christ, neglect the heart of God, because they've been so focused on the religious actions. We justify ourselves through the outer works that we do, and we miss living and embodying the person of Jesus in our lives. We fail to acknowledge our wrongdoing and seek to change it. There's a, a couple studies that have been done in recent years that I think illustrate this. One of them was done uh, by an organization called BARNA. Some of you may be familiar with this organization. They're one of the more foremost uh, researching organizations around spirituality in the Western world. have a bunch of really helpful data. And uh, they did a study of non-Christians and asked them to report about their evangel- evangelistic interactions with Christians. The ways that Christians tended to evangelize them. And what their experience was of those evangelistic conclusions. Here's what they said about Christians. They, uh, only 34% of non-Christians, 34% said that Christians listen without judgment. Only 17% of non-Christians, 17 said Christians demonstrate genuine interest in their lives. Only 16% reported that Christians were good at asking questions. And only 9% reported that uh, Christians were aware of the inconsistencies in their perspective. There wasn't humility. There wasn't grace. There wasn't love. They were doing the right things, evangelizing, right? But they were missing the... uh, the non-holistic approach that they were taking. They were missing the heart of Christ for these neighbors. And they were unable to identify where they might need to critique or repent. They were doing their thing and moving on. There was another LifeWay research study that found uh, 72% of non-Christians believe the church to be hypocritical. 72%, three out of four non-Christians that you meet will report the church is hypocritical. Friends, when doing highly religious things, Christians, at every turn, are often perceived as undermining the character of Christ. That's problematic. Regardless of what the religious end games are, if our ways and our means are not illustrating the character of Christ, we are defeating the purpose. And we we miss it because we think it's about the outer thing. The people who say they go to church, who say they read their Bibles, who say they follow Jesus, are often wrapped up in outer actions that fail to cultivate an inner character that looks like Jesus. So our outside-in approach can prevent us from ultimately critiquing and repenting where we need to, identifying the ways that maybe our religious actions haven't been well-motivated. Without regular self-evaluation and critique, our religion will always decay into idolatry. Without regular self-evaluation and critique, our religion will always decay into idolatry. Which leads to the third way that the outside-in approach traps us. The outside-in approach makes the means the ends. It makes the religious practice the point of it all. But that's backwards. Religious practice is always a means to a different end, friends. You don't come to church just to come to church. You come to church to experience the living God and allow that God to transform you in one way or another. Church is a means to a different end. You don't read your Bibles just to read your Bibles. You read your Bibles so that you can be transformed by the story of Jesus that is bringing redemption and restoration to all things. You don't believe the right intellectual ideas just to do that. You believe those things so that they can get deeply within you and so that you can have your entire life affected by them. It's not about the religious thing that we do. That's never the end game. It's always a means to a different end. Religious behavior management will never, never bring real transformation, friends, because it's only dealing with the outside of the dish. It's only living with a nice Clint shirt. And if we start to believe that our outer religious actions can do this for us, that they can really transform us, then Jesus says we're like the Pharisees, we're fools. Because we need something that cleanses deeper. Our outside-in religion is often the greatest obstacle to a fully transformed life. And this, by the way, is not a new thing that Jesus is bringing up. This is actually something that's been true across the whole of this library of texts. The Israelite people over and over are reminded that it's not about the religious things. It's about embodying the person of the character of God in their lives. The prophets speak a lot about this. The prophets speak regularly to the Israelite people and tell them, hey, it's not about your religious actions. There's a a great quote that I want to share with you guys from Isaiah 1. Now, I'm pulling this from Eugene Peterson's translation, the message translation because he puts it into more modern language for us to understand. And this, this is convicting. This is the Lord speaking to the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. Quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games. Monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings, 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 meetings. I can't stand one more. Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. Eugene Peterson was a Presbyterian. Presbyterians love meetings, so... I might be painting some of his translation here. He says, You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, religion, religion while you go right on sinning. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. And do you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. Go home and wash up, clean up your act. Sweep your lives clean of your evil doings so I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go to bat for the defenseless. Friends, religion is often our greatest obstacle to illustrating love and grace of God to our world. We need to know that as religious people and seek not just to cultivate a nice outer image but see inner transformation come in our lives. And there's an important point I want to make here, because sometimes, especially, I know this can happen for me, we can tend to think that religion just creates this outside-in approach, right? So if we just get rid of religion, the legalism and the corruption, then then we'll be good to go, right? Dump this thing. Leave this behind. And I understand that instinct, truly. But before we throw it out, I think it's worth asking, is it religion that causes the outside-in approach, or is it something different? Look around our world. Think about it in your own head for a second. Do we encourage outside of religious spaces outward piety and put-togetherness in ways that elevate us in the eyes of others. All the time. This is a human thing, not a religious thing. Our political tribes do this. They say, you need to agree with everything on our political list, and if you don't, you're excommunicated. You need to publicly toe the party line. And then we have a culture that says that if you do or say the wrong thing, if you post the wrong thing, you are getting canceled. Now, I'm all for accountability, by the way. It's important for people to be accountable for their actions. But if we have no method for redemption and restoration, if we are just excommunicating people for something they've done, then we have no real way to transform our culture. It will always be people hiding what they really believe. It will always result in us just protecting our public image. And it's never going to result in a transformed culture. And if you want the biggest evidence of this, just look at social media. Right? We have platforms that are built on cultivating an outer image, independent of what's going on in here. The outside-in approach isn't just religious, it's human. And religion is just a new vehicle to practice the same human thing that we're all doing. And so even if we throw out religion, the problem persists for us. This is a real issue. Friends, real connection to God is not an outside-in process, and no amount of good-looking shirts that you wear will make you showered and teeth-brushed, which is why Jesus doesn't leave us there in this story. He points us to a different way. He says the alternative way is the inside-out spirituality. After he calls out the Pharisees, he points to a solution. He says, give for alms those things that are within. Give for alms those things that are within. Now, alms is kind of a fancy older word. We don't use it very much in our culture. It functionally means giving so that the poor and the needy can be loved and cared for. And that should strike us as odd, right? He's moving away from the outside-in approach, and yet he gives us an outside thing to do. That's odd, right? But notice, where is the alms-giving sourced? within. Jesus is advocating for an inner transformation that leads to outer action. He's saying, start in the deepest parts of who you are, and then from there, see your action transformed." Jesus is telling us that real, lasting life and connection to God comes when we allow God's values, God's concerns, and God's priorities to dictate ours, when we allow them to sink into us in the deepest parts of who we are. Our motivations, our thoughts, our uh, souls, the deepest parts of our character, that's where we want to allow God to work. Because from those things, transformed people will come. This is what the scriptures talk about when they speak about the spirit of God working from within us. It's transforming us so that we no longer see the world in the same way. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 12, when he says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Be transformed in the deepest parts of who you are and allow God's priorities to dictate yours. This isn't a human willpower thing. It's a thing that we ultimately receive God doing. God desires to do this for everyone here. We just have to be open to it. Receptivity, the presence and character of God in the deepest parts of ourselves. That's what we're talking about. And by the way, that doesn't mean that Jesus disregards outer action. Almsgiving is still the result here, right? He still wants us to go out and transform the world, but that doesn't start on the outside. It starts here. He's pointing out the importance of holistic transformation, connecting what you believe with what you do in every way. There's a theologian named Michael Novak. Michael Novak, who speaks about this. He talks about three different levels of belief. I think this is a helpful picture for us. He talks about... Public belief, private belief, and core belief. Public belief is what I want other people to think I believe, what I project to the world. And then private belief is what I think I believe, and core belief is what I actually believe, underneath that. He says that you can have public and private belief aligned, but your core belief may not be there. We know all sorts of examples in our world of people who say they believe one thing and their lives don't actually illustrate it in another way. Uh, An example of this from the scriptures is Peter. Peter, when asked by Jesus who he says Jesus is, Peter says, you're the Messiah in front of everyone else. His public belief is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Then his private belief, Lord, we pray for whatever's happening down the street with the ambulance. We pray for the folks who are affected by this. Um, We pray that you would be with them. You would bring life to all the people working to help them. Amen. Public belief is what I want other people to believe. Peter said, you are the Messiah. That's what I want everyone to believe that I believe. Then his private belief is also exposed later. Jesus says, hey, all of you are going to deny me. And Peter's like, no, 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 not going to deny you. I'm here. I'm with you. He really believed that he wasn't going to deny Jesus. But then he did. His core belief was exposed when pressure was inflicted upon him. When life circumstances dictated that his belief get to the deepest parts of who he was, well, he failed. So he had a public belief and a private belief that were aligned and great, but his core belief hadn't been changed yet. He needed to be transformed in the deepest parts of who he was. This is a regular occurrence for Peter. He has to keep seeing the spirit of God and and Jesus reminding him of this change. Friends, the Christian life is about aligning every part of our belief from the core to the public. God is not in the business of outward moral tidiness. He's not in the business of cleaning the outside of the dish. He's in the business of changing us in every way so that we might look more and more like Jesus every day. So this is kind of theoretical, right? I'm giving you frameworks and ideas, but what's the practical way that we do this, right? How do we move from the outside-in approach that can trap us to the inside-out approach? I think there's a a few questions we can ask, and I've actually got a graphic here that you guys can see, that illustrates the difference in how we move from one to the other. So the outside-in approach asks the question, Am I doing the right religious things? Am I receiving affirmation from others as a validation of my nearness to God? Am I proving myself to be excellent in comparison with others? These are all outside in sorts of questions. And by the way, the religious thing's not intrinsically bad. Affirmation from others, not intrinsically bad, right? But if that's our motivation, we're working with an outside in approach. The alternative is the inside out approach. Are my motivations and actions in line with the sacrificial love of Christ? Am I extending grace and forgiveness in the same way I've received it? Is my money, my time, and my energy spent bringing peace and restoration to those around me? Those are different sorts of questions. You guys see how those are different? One is focusing on the outer bowl. One is, the other is focusing on the inner dish. And when we do this well, when we shift to an inside-out perspective, two things start to happen to us. One, we become more free in ourselves because we are living authentic lives. We don't have this separation between uh, what we at our core believe versus what we present to the world, which is often a trap for us. We don't have to maintain a fake image because we're allowing uh, our our whole being to be transformed. But then we also become better witnesses to Christ. Remember, the world works with an outside-in approach, and so when they look at Christians, they see the same sorts of things. If all of a sudden, Christians are people who really deeply believe in self-sacrifice who really deeply believe in forgiveness and reconciliation, it's going to transform things. They're going to see that and say, that's different than anything that's happening out there. It's a better witness to Christ. And we undermine those 72% of people who think Christians are hypocritical the church is hypocritical. You guys, the Christian life is not just about religious action. It's about getting the way of Jesus into our bones into our sinews, into our muscles, into our imaginations, into our creativity. It means seeing the world as a place that Jesus is constantly redeeming and restoring, receiving that redemption and restoration in our lives, and then proclaiming that to the world. That's why our mission is what it is at this church. We say it every Sunday. We exist to invite people into a transformative relationship with Jesus. That's not just fancy theological language. We truly believe that when we receive Jesus into our lives, it can transform everything about us. We can become radically different people. And then a group of radically different people can transform the world and make the world radically different. Church history is a long story. When this is done well, a long story of transformed people transforming the places that they're in. That's what we want to be. So let's do it together friends, in this community. Let's do this inside-out work together. Let's allow Jesus's life, death, and resurrection to transform us. Let's become people willing to brush our teeth and shower, not just put a nice shirt on. Let's turn our lives inside out. Let's pray.